Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Chunk. I'm Annie Hanma and I study international and interdisciplinary cooperation in space at the University of Sydney's School of History and Philosophy of Science. In this episode, I bring you part one of a wide-ranging and delectable conversation with fan favourite and good friend Dr Benjamin Pope. Ben has a PhD in astrophysics from Oxford University and is currently a NASA Sagan Fellow at NYU researching exoplanets. In this episode, Ben and I tackle an inadvisably large number and bewilderingly wide range of space movies. Do either of us have qualifications in film studies? No, but Ben won university challenge and I took drama in year 11, so that has to be good enough. Some of the references in this episode are a little out of date as it was recorded some time ago, notably Trump's worst ideas so far. You'll know it when you hear it. As usual, Ben's vocabulary is vast and includes the occasional swear word. There's nothing to be done, I'm afraid. You have to take your astrophysicist as you find him, sweary or otherwise. As always, I'm required to say that any opinions expressed by me on this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of any organisation with which I'm associated. This episode is certified 100% tardigrade free, unlike the moon. Should we talk about space? Let's fucking talk about... Should we have an intro and then a talk about space? Ah, uh, we could, or we could just make this the intro. Uh, maybe the <laughs> intro is just like, stop trying to make race science happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I don't know. Amazing. I had so um, much coffee today. Yes, that's right. So, Ben, why don't you tell us why you've had so much coffee? Well... I've had so much coffee because I'm astonishingly jet-lagged. Over the last six weeks, I have been back and forth between Sydney and New York three times. I think my circadian rhythm recently uh, has ceased to be, you know, some kind of 24-hour cycle, really approached a, a quantum state where it's not that it's trying to adapt to whichever city I'm living in. It's, that's actually a superposition of all of the different cities I've been to in the last month. And I, I actually have no particular circadian rhythm in a, in a definite sense. Um, I'd still like to explore the mathematics of that, but I don't understand them um, or why I feel garbage all the time. But maybe I should stop doing this. So, the last time you were on this podcast, hmm. we recorded two episodes because we just got really carried away. Yeah. Um, one was on Space Force. Space Force, the worst idea that Donald Trump's yet had, <laughs> apart from all the racism. <laughs> and the next one was on the Humanity Star. Well, you talked me around on the Humanity Star. I hated the Humanity Star to start with, and you talked me around to ambivalence. I don't know that I intended to talk you around to anything. I'm not sure how I feel about it still. But that's right, because I was sure how I felt about it, and you convinced me that I should be unsure. So, I thought that I would get you back again, mm. um, give you tea, bribe you with chocolate chip bickies. I feel very sorry for Earl Grey. He gets to be the Prime Minister and is mostly remembered for tea. That is an absolutely wonderful thing to be remembered for. Mm. Well, great tea is fantastic. 
If you were the Prime Minister, wouldn't you be rather remembered for abolishing slavery than for a particular variety of tea? That's a trick question. Both of those things are good. Mm, good. It reminds me of Skyfall, where Q is saying that I could do more damage sitting in my pyjamas with my mm. laptop before my first cup of Earl Grey than you can do in a year in the field. I found that interesting, the, the way in which we glass tea that, you know, Q has Earl Grey, or um, Captain Picard likes Earl Grey, doesn't he, in Star Trek? I don't know. Because I haven't watched it closely enough, clearly. Because he always up tea, Earl Grey, hock. I can't do the voice. I mean, basically, I haven't watched Star Trek very much either, and we can talk about this in a minute. I think that was one of the things we were wanting to talk about. But it's funny that we, we you know, the idea of, you know, I drink black tea with, you know, milk and sugar is like builder's tea and an authentically working class, whereas Earl Grey is for posh people. But they cost the same from the shop, right? I mean, it's not as oh, if... Oh, you can buy a good can, okay, you can buy really 50 pack cheap. of Tetley black tea. Which is what I have at the office for, I was you know. sort of twinings or something, but maybe that reveals my class already. Twinings. Twinings. Wow. Extravagant. I actually, I do really like buying fancy tea, but not mm. as much as you do. I, so I buy too much fancy tea. When I was staying, uh, for the benefit of listeners who, are, who we've been ignoring thus far. Don't worry, we'll get to space soon. Uh, when I was staying with Ben recently in New York, because I was between conferences and poor. No, nothing better to do. Nothing better to do, exactly. So they always been, no, no, no. I wanted to visit Ben. Ben's great. Ben has the most phenomenal collection of extremely expensive and bizarre yeah. varieties of black well, tea. T2 is, is T2 open near me in New York and it's good and very expensive. Every time I walk <laughs> in, it's like getting mugged <laughs> because they say, and do you want to try this? I go, yes, I would. And then I, I drink it and it's really nice in a bus. It was all great tea. And that cost you 50 bucks when you walk into T2. You're like, oh, good. Gosh, 50 bucks? Yeah. What are you buying? Like expensive tea. Is T2 designer tea? I just yeah. realized it's basically the Nespresso of pod coffee. Shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> good pun. Yeah. No, I don't know. And I was just like, what's wrong with Nespresso? I said... What is I wrong usually with drink espresso? from my Aeropress. Who's the guy uh, who's in the espresso ads? George Clooney. George Clooney. George Clooney wouldn't endorse anything that wasn't excellent, would he? No. Except maybe gravity. I thought gravity was good. Here we go. Now we're on to space. Now we're on to space. Did you like that? That was a good segue. I was going to say. I was, I was wondering when you were going to segue. I was wondering whether we were going to get onto it with your mention of uh, Star Trek and Earl Grey. I, I, I tried to throw you on there. No, you know. but I didn't. I didn't want to. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. Wouldn't cornered. be so gauchous to take a segue that was offered that was suboptimal. Exactly. You had to just nail it. I'm way too proud. Yourself. And now here we go. Yeah. So, gravity. Tell us about gravity, Ben. You enjoyed it. Well, I really liked it. Um, I thought that. Uh, as a depiction of uh, the, the the Kessler syndrome, sort of of, of um, you know disintegration of objects in low Earth orbit, as a as a, a chain reaction when one satellite gets struck by material and spreads to all of the others, that was very compelling. And I thought Sandra Bullock was a capable and exciting heroine who was put in basically plausible scenarios. I know some people criticise the science, but. For example, there was this one bit where George Clooney drifts off into space. Do you remember that? I know that people say, well, obviously in space, he's not going to fall like that. 
But in my head, I just thought, there's some amount of angular momentum that they all have, and he's being pushed away. And maybe that's wrong, but it didn't seem weird to me that in a scenario where everyone was spinning around and flying around, that there would be, he would end up with a centrifugal force pulling him on a rope or something. Mm. I, I thought, basically all of the science, it didn't strike me as horrifying. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of people who go, well, actually, I think we'll find. But it, I thought it was, a, um, what I liked about it, was it was a, a depiction of an exciting scenario involving space exploration that was non-military. So it wasn't all about like the aliens are invading and it wasn't about saving the Earth from asteroids and it wasn't about conflict. It was about one woman's struggle to survive in a very hostile environment through ingenuity and bravery. And I thought that that kind of Humanity struggling for the stars narrative is much nicer than all the militarized sci-fi that we, we get these days. I thought it was a breath of fresh air. Well, I'm glad you thought that. What did you think? I did not enjoy it that much. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you the truth, which mm. was that I tried to watch it. I got about 10 minutes in and I stopped. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I agree. I liked the Kessler effect stuff, the debris cloud, all really useful. Mm. And I've used images from it in presentations mm. because it's visually great. But I really didn't enjoy... For some reason, when I watched it, the male characters seemed to be sort of fine, mm. except for the one that was dead. But yeah, the, He wasn't okay. He wasn't all right. He but, had a hole in his head. But Sandra Bullock's <laughs> character was yeah. just like freaking out mm. the whole time and it was all you could hear because it was just the sound of breathing <sighs> yeah exactly it was a bit much yeah um and i thought that that was I mean, i'm sure if it was me and it was i was in that situation i'd be panicking too yeah. but i thought here's someone who has trained their whole life to be an astronaut why yeah. is it that she's suddenly more afraid than anyone else like she's she knows like she's yeah. experienced she knows what she's doing um, yes, you'd freak out, but I just, I didn't, I just got really grumpy about it. But I thought as, well, I mean, I both agree with you and slightly disagree. Like as the, in the slight disagrees, as the movie went on, I felt she, um, there was meant to be an emotional journey where she was freaked out. And then at the end, she's completely resolute mm. and that she grows into this crisis. And so that's. That gives you a satisfying character arc. And I think if they'd started where she's just like extremely competent and solves the problem, that wouldn't play well as a movie. But I do agree. And particularly like the um, the physicality of all the panting and, and everything mm. sort of ties into like weird gender discourse about like how men's bodies are neutral, but women's bodies are things. And like she's got this extreme physicality to her role involving making lots of noises and um, emphasis on the, the physical strain of her activities, which I don't think they would have played with a male character in the same way. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a much better way of putting what I felt. So that's why I didn't finish it. But I, I may yet go back to it, possibly on an aeroplane at some point. It would be all right. It, 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 I, I thought it was entertaining. I don't know. But I, I, and I know what you mean. Like, I, I thought that that was jarring too. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it, it, I, maybe it isn't an improvement on the the lantern jawed all American male hero of sexism, like in the right stuff. The right stuff. The right stuff. What did you think of the right stuff? Well, I watched this for the first time um, on said. Uh, not quite a holiday, but when I was staying yeah. with you in New York, uh, drinking all of your really expensive tea. Yep. And I sat and I had a cup of very expensive tea and I was super caffeinated because I was incredibly mm. jet lagged. Yeah. And I'd also lost my voice because I'd been um, out clubbing until 4am every night at the International Astronautical Congress. That we all. Who knew that yeah. space nerds were just such dynamos on the dance floor? Yeah. Obviously, I am, but mm. I was pleasantly surprised. It was great yeah. fun. So I, I turned up at Ben's place just basically barely functioning because the previous night, so I'd gone out to dinner with someone, then I'd gone to drinks at a bar where like all of the young people who were there mm. were had descended on this craft beer bar where they had like 30 craft beers oh, on good. tap. And then we all went to this random club and went and were just dancing um, in, in Bremen until around 4.30 in the morning, I got a text on my mobile saying that my flight, which was meant to be at 8 a.m., had been canceled. Anyway, so we all went and got, what do you get? Uh, burritos or something? What, uh, falafels? falafels? I don't know. I, don't, I can't tell you what you got in Bremen. I don't know what they got. <laughs> I didn't get one, but everyone else got one. A um, currywurst? Uh, yeah, and it was like, 5 a.m. and I was yeah. on the phone to the the travel agent here in Sydney who managed to book me onto another flight with a different airline going via somewhere else that was leaving at nine or something like that. No. So I was like, well, at that point, there's just no point going to sleep. No. So at about 6.30, as dawn was kind of starting to break, I walked back to the hotel, had a shower, packed my bag, walked out of the hotel um, and got on the tram <laughs> and went to the airport. And like, it was great because the sun was rising mm. and at the front of the exhibition hall where the Astronautical Congress was held, they had a rocket. That we all. Uh, maybe it was DLR or something. But, but yeah, they just had a rocket mm. sitting there. And so the sun was coming mm. up and this rocket was just like looking amazing. It was beautiful. That's so cool. It was really nice. And then I passed out on the aeroplane and got to New York. Mm. No issues. Turned up at Ben's place and was just couldn't, just basically couldn't talk. Yeah. You, you just had to feed me caffeine. And yeah. in this state of absolute exhaustion. This haze. This haze where I, I could, couldn't make any decisions. You were like, let's watch the right stuff. And yeah. I, I agreed. But it was a great decision. It was a really good movie. It was a depiction of masculinity and sort of bravery and yeah. all of that. It was just wonderful. So mm. much of it was brilliant. But the bit that sticks with me in my head mm. is the the part where the bar burns down. Yeah. And all the photographs of all the guys who had died being test pilots mm. are just, just burning up. The end of an era. Yeah, the era is over and they don't matter anymore. It's about being the being the astronauts. Yeah, and this transition monkeys. between these people who are at the start of the film, they're like, I want to get my picture up there. What do you have to do to get your picture up there? And it's been like, oh, you have to die. You know, you don't want to get your picture up there. That's super bad luck. And, you know, this idea of like unshowy, unsentimental, you know, uh, 
old school greatest generation toughness uh, as epitomized by Chuck Yeager. Um, and, and where people like there's word of mouth in this bar about actually Chuck Yeager is the best. Um, giving way to this mass celebrity of the astronauts. Mm. That was really interesting. And exactly this, this destroying of their pictures of the test pilots pictures is a really good symbol of this happening. Just the like individual where they being ha- yeah. sublimated into the nationalistic cause. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's, a good, that's a good way to put it. I thought that was quite good too. I, I approve of that. Yes. Yeah. I, what I thought was fascinating is how appealing they make it all seem. All of this machismo and, you know, nationalism and techno fetishism that is clearly something we should problematize is presented in such an appealing and compelling way where, where I guess you get to see the aesthetic from its own proponent's point of view, mm. almost. Whether or not the film is implicitly critical of this, as a whole, it's really strongly seducing you into this particular conception of the world and of space and of mm. you know technology and masculinity. I think that was a really remarkable thing that it did, as opposed to a similar film in principle where they try and interrogate and humanise some of these concepts in a way that I thought completely fell flat as both a form of entertainment and a form of intellectual inquiry. You know which film I'm talking about because we were talking about it earlier. I think I do, Ben. I don't, I'm not going to pretend like we haven't been uh, discussing this movie for some time now. The First Man first sucked. Man. What a bad movie. It's just desperately disappointing. Really very disappointing. Yeah. I'm not, to be fair, I'm not the biggest fan of Ryan Gosling to begin with. Like, I don't, I'm not sort of a devotee of his movies. But he was wooden. Yeah. I, I mean, I think he was trying to play a particular variety of personality that comes across in that manner. But I guess, so like, one of the things that's so enigmatic about Neil Armstrong as a character is that he didn't like the public eye, that he was taciturn, that, you know, um, he went back to being an engineering lecturer <clears throat> as most of his career after the um, space flight. Mm. He is this enigmatic character and that, that's why it's worth humanising him in a film. But what I thought was such a failure is that um, Ryan Gosling interpreted a lack of windows into this real person's inner life as a lack of inner life. Mm. Armstrong had no internality that wasn't related to his girlfriend's death, uh, not his girlfriend, his daughter's death, which is um, sort of like a cousin of this like girlfriend in the freezer. That's why I said girlfriend. Like of the only way that you can motivate men in fiction is through the death of a woman to whom they're attached. Mm. And it was just such lazy. It's just like, oh, I'm sad about my dead daughter from 10 years ago. Obviously he is, but. That was the only emotional note they could bring him to. And he landed on the fucking moon. You know, how can you have no internality about being an astronaut and all of the challenges and rewards that that offers? Like, sure, he he didn't, the real guy didn't say a lot about this experience, but that doesn't mean he didn't feel a lot. Mm. And I feel that bringing out some of that tension would have been a very interesting film. 
But instead, it was just one note all the way through. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because you're quite right. He was completely motivated by um, the, the sort of feeling desperately sad and repressing his emotions mm. about the death of his daughter and not talking about it with anyone else. Mm. But it was no interaction really with his wife mm. at all. None. It was very odd. And maybe I've spoken to some people who thought it was a very realistic movie in the same way that, say, Mad Men is a realistic yeah. depiction of that era, that this was a realistic depiction of marriage in that era. Sounds horrible. Yeah, it does. Mm. Um, but I guess the idea of the man who represses his emotions and the woman who's sort of just, like, they're quite distant. Yeah. So that's possible from an emotional perspective. But I did think it was very odd, as you say, that there was nothing else to it. Because I could perfectly well imagine someone not wanting to be in the public eye because they were just mm. um, a bit shy or they fundamentally disagreed with the politics of what was going on or any mm. of those things. And funnily enough, in The Right Stuff, you, they bring out a lot of that mm. in the characterization and the relationships mm. with the men's wives and yeah. whether or not they'll appear on camera or not and all of that. You get a much better insight into yeah. why the people are acting the way they're acting. Yeah. And in First Man, you, you don't get it at all. It's just like, here's a guy who's completely single-minded about being an astronaut. But he's not even very focused on being an astronaut. You, you see very little of him doing astronauty things. And it's so cruel to the other astronauts. Like, okay, Buzz Aldrin is a, you know, a well-known uh, character, I guess, mm. in real life. But they play Buzz in a very negative light. The fact that he has been, you know, involved in conflict, I guess, at points in his life doesn't mean that he doesn't have complexity. And they just played Buzz as an asshole in the movie. And Michael Collins, they first introduce him in the capsule ready to go. You go, OK, I mean, I know he's been erased from history, but Michael Collins is a fascinating guy. His autobiography in Carrying the Flame, oh, beautiful book. Mm. I mean, I think the achievement of being the pilot who stayed on the on the ship is still really interesting. And presumably these guys met each other before they got on the on the capsule together. Oh, well, this is the bit I liked least about the yeah. film was that you got to see none of the human interaction that occurred yeah. from when they took off yeah. and when they landed. Yeah. Because that's a period of several days. Yeah. They would have been in close confines. Mm. It would have been fascinating, even if you took the characterization which they gave you know, which they made Ryan Gosling play of this yeah. guy. Even if you took that characterization, yeah. putting that man in close proximity to other people where they all had to cooperate in order to survive would have made this mm. uh, infinitely more interesting because they would have had to bring out something else in his character. And actually, the other thing that would have been really interesting is the title of the movie, First Man. Was it, I mean, this is the, the, a fundamental aspect of the story is... Who was going to be first? Mm. And, I mean, um, Buzz Aldrin in his autobiography, Magnificent Desolation, well, describes how this really damaged him as a person was that he had hoped to be first and, and wasn't. Mm. And that I feel that they could have brought out this drive of Armstrong didn't seem to be doing it for a reason, being an astronaut for a reason, mm. that is. He didn't seem to want anything but his, his dead daughter. And also, Aldrin didn't didn't have any conflict, any tension. He was just like, 
bit of a dick in the movie. But no, Buzz Aldrin was a really complex and interesting guy. Mm. They didn't do, like, he did mass on the moon. That would have been a cool story. Instead, we had some made-up thing about Armstrong throwing his daughter's, uh, 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 was it it a necklace? Was it a a bracelet? Into a, into a crater, which is not historical. Yeah, it's made so it up. never happened. Never, well, I mean, we can't say it never happened, I guess, but I don't think it ever happened. Mm. There's no evidence for it. And I think the real things that people did are fascinating enough. And the interpersonal plays, as you say, would have been really cool. Like Aldrin and Armstrong, I mean, didn't necessarily get along extremely well, is my understanding. Mm. And that would have been some cool drama. And yeah. trying to find out what Aldrin feels about being told he's going to be second, which ends up, as we know later, really influencing his later trajectory as a person. His self-conception hinges on that he was the second man on the moon. Mm. And he writes this whole biography about his battle with alcoholism and stuff. What did you think about the fact that they didn't include the planting of the flag? I know that Donald yeah. Trump had some feelings on this one. Uh, did he? I didn't. What did he say? Did he say something? Didn't you hear about this? No, no, I didn't hear about he this. He tweeted about it and was like, this is an outrage. Really? Yeah. It's weird, though, that now I feel awkward about having been upset by the same movie that Donald Trump was upset by. I feel that we should have different tastes. Probably. Did you notice that it wasn't in the film? No. No, see, I didn't notice that either. No. But I reckon maybe if I had been alive at the time that it happened and watching it on TV... That would have been a thing mm. I did miss from the film. I think it's going to be fascinating when the first archaeologists go to the moon. Oh, they're keen. Yeah. Alice Gorman will be there like a shot. Oh, man. Absolutely. Yeah, that will be really interesting. Well, of course, Ben, they might find that there's nothing there. Wouldn't that be funny all if, a hoax. if it was a hoax, but then the archaeologists unintentionally did the first moon landings? That would be amazing. Yeah. That would be the sort of that would be the sort of thing that social science needs <laughs> <laughs> to prove that there's value. Yeah, absolutely. That would be or the meta hoax. What if you could get a team of archaeologists to do a hoax that they did moon landings and found nothing? Ooh. What if you could do all the sets really well and have fake moon landings to show that the moon landings were fake? Let's do this April 1st in like a couple of years. I think so. People will have forgotten about this podcast. No, we'll just cut this bit out, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah. So while we're talking about the moon landing, do you want to talk about The Dish? I love The Dish. How good is The Dish? Great film. I saw it for the first time on the airplane on the way home from the US. Fantastic. mere months ago. And I had no idea what a cracker of a movie it was. So good. Very it's good. one of the great, I think maybe the greatest ever Australian film. Very good. Very funny. And in contrast to First Man, yeah. a very sympathetic and interesting depiction yeah. of masculinity mm. in Australia at the time. And it, even the American dude who turned up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, Sam Neill is obviously just my favourite actor. Like, just Sam Neill. Well, not, I mean, that's maybe a strong statement, but Sam Neill is just such a sympathetic character. Oh, you should. Did you see when Julia Zimiro took him around the South Island of New Zealand? No. And they just did a, like a chat thing about his childhood. No. He's such a nice man. He's a very sympathetic guy. And so they tell a really nice story, even if it's not substantially true. 
They were using Honeysuckle Creek for the start of the moon landings. Mm. They didn't use parks until some time into the moon landings. Mm. And the depictions of the relationships between people at parks is substantially fictional, you know. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that's important is, you know, they situate these scientists as being parks people with um, rural Australian values, but they were intensely networked with the CSIRO in Sydney. And mm. parks had been funded by the United States, substantially. Well, I mean, that came out in the film because the guy came over from NASA. Yeah. And but was, was sort of NSF checking money. up on things. National Science Foundation was one of the largest mm. ever outside the US grants given by the NSF. And so the character that Sam Neill is roughly based on is meant to be John Bolton. There was a really good recent biography by Peter Davidson, uh, which I got for Christmas last year. I got the only copy in Abby's bookshop, so probably no one else can buy it now because it's probably not a very big run. <laughs> of uh, It was called Radio Astronomer. So you can tell how many biographies there are of radio astronomers if you can just call the title yeah. of your book Radio Astronomer. It was about John Bolton. He's a fascinating guy. Englishman, came over to Australia during the war, uh, had been involved in radar developments uh, in uh, the British military and ended up working in Sydney and... In complicated ways, he ends up being a pivotal figure in the early CSIRO and in the foundation of radio astronomy in Australia. And then he is recruited by Caltech to start radio astronomy in the United States. Mm. Then he comes back to Australia to do parks. Mm. And so he's got this spectacular career. But it's fascinating. What we forget is that Bolton is remembered as as a visionary, which he was, as a terrific scientist and a very effective manager which he was. But for example, Bolton took his position at the CSIRO of power early on explicitly by marginalising in sexist ways Ruby Payne Scott. So it is very interesting to see in some sense a hagiographic depiction of a person who was in many ways admirable in terms of his achievements and capabilities, but who did not behave admirably towards everybody. Well, and again, the characterization in the film, yeah. again, he was motivated by the death of his wife. It's the only thing that motivates men in fiction. Except the other guy who was motivated by the young woman who brought the sandwiches. Oh, of course, yes. I mean, that's true. She was too. still alive. Yeah. She was a bad driver, though. In the sequel, so she'll be okay. dead, though. That's the only way to make. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, though, it was a funny film. Oh, fuck, it was funny? Very funny. Loved the playing cricket, cricket in, the, in, the dish. in the dish. Loved the, um, the sheep all over the place. It was a film that had Australian humour that appealed, still appealed to yeah. me as an Australian. Yeah. I can imagine it. It's funny because I would have thought it would be quite popular overseas, but obviously Crocodile Dundee is well, universally. People, I mean, this relates to Australia's, you know, position uh, in its own psyche and in the world's is... This cultural cringe, this idea that Australia is not a serious place, the idea that Australia is a joke, the idea that Australianness is something to be embarrassed about, or at least humorous about, and that things that we can celebrate in Australianness are these tough macho stereotypes. Um, right in this bag here, I've got uh, the beautiful book of the Australian Impressionists exhibit, which I just thought was stunning. Really fantastic stuff. But people like John Russell have to go to France to become successful. And they really 
it's, it's not so much about Australian Impressionism as Australians participating in Impressionism, uh, which was developed elsewhere. And uh, I mean, we did do really well in art at the turn of the century and don't get enough credit for that. Mm. But I think the development of radio astronomy was the first time that science developed in Australia or an intellectual movement developed in Australia, I should even generalize, spread to the rest of the world, which didn't have it. That's remarkable. And that's why the dish, I think, is a, and a good exemplar of this. It's that like we like to talk about, oh, Lawrence Hargrave was great. He did the box kite and he did very early experiments in heavier than air flight. But he was basically ignored by his contemporaries overseas. And you have to do a lot of special pleading to say that Lawrence Hargrave really was the Wright brothers before the Wright brothers. Because really it's the Wright brothers were the Wright brothers mm. in terms of how the rest of the world remembers them, even if maybe the situation at the time with Hargrave was complicated. You know, um, same with Charles Kingsford Smith or, you know, all of these people in aviation. I think, I mean, is another example of a thing where Australians are nearly leading the world and participate very significantly in the early developments, but don't, don't lead the intellectual uh, discourse mm. about it and don't persist in people's memories mm. internationally. Is it that they're not leading intellectual discourse or just that no one's listening? I think in both, I think both. Mm. I think that people weren't listening, people still aren't listening, and that that meant that they had limited sway on the discourse internationally. What I really love about the dish is the way that it has a humane, scientific and internationalist perspective of Australia and what Australians can be and do. Mm. And I think that's the thing I most like about it. I mean, not even just the astronomy is almost irrelevant to me. It's the idea that Australia is a place which is something that serious people can do serious things, that good people can do good things, and that isn't defined exclusively by what it is not, but what it can be. On the subject of people not listening, yeah, another great film, mm. Hidden Figures. Oh, I liked that. Oh, yeah. yes. I really liked that. I'm just thinking similar era. Yeah. Uh, and this time telling the story of a group of marginalised women. Yeah. Instead yeah. of marginalised Australian white men. Well, I mean, uh, as, as I was sort of saying, it's actually, well, the marginalised person in the Australian context was Ruby Payne Scott. She was fabulous. She was a communist feminist campaigner. She got sacked because she got married. Anyway, I think I've already ranted about Ruby Payne Scott elsewhere, but... That's that's something I'm very interested in is these mm. people who get marginalised. And I thought Hidden Figures was terrific for bringing them to the foreground. I thought as a film, some things actually seem disrespectful towards them. Like where they say, does anybody know analytic geometry? And then she has to draw some fucking parabolas on a blackboard. Mm. That's not advanced maths and that's not what she contributed. She contributed some serious stuff. I thought that the scriptwriters really undersell what these women contributed. I thought that that is in itself disrespectful. They pitched it as a humanistic film, in which some science was trivial. But I think part of the discourse around science being inaccessible is related to why people from marginalised backgrounds in science are especially marginalised. And mm. it's something about the discourse of how it relates to whiteness and masculinity and power. And so I feel that it was important that they do it right 
and they didn't. Mm. And I thought that was weird. But otherwise, I thought the film was good. It had been a long time coming. I really enjoyed it. One of the things I really, really liked about it was the way they had um, the older white mm. man in the office who basically, you know, gets her working on things and gives yeah. her work, but who is not her champion yeah. and who basically at the end of it says, well, see you later, yeah. you know, and they give her a gift and she's gone. I thought that was a really interesting, a really interesting way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, and I liked that because it would have been very tempting for them to make him the hero. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I thought it was good that they purposefully did not. I yeah. thought it was a good film for, the whole, for a whole range of reasons. I mean, fundamentally, it was just a good movie as well. Oh, very entertaining. Very and, you know, it was, it was a story that had to be told. I mean, I'm glad that this particular form of discourse uh, of, and I, I was talking to you earlier about Ariana Rosenbluth, and, mm. and Ruby Payne Scott and, and some people like that, who I really, I'm, I'm picky about being acknowledged. And at the moment, I'm actually, so I'm in a, a battle with the journal editors about citing Elizabeth Alexander as the first radio astronomer to resolve an object, the sun. Mm. And her publication on this, only one legible copy has we've been able to track down is in uh, the University of Edinburgh Library. And mm. so I'm, the, the, the authors, don't, the, the editors don't want me to cite this paper unless I can show them where in the paper it says the thing I say it says. But I'm only able to cite it as a secondary source that's quoted elsewhere. Mm. So I've actually paid for the University of Edinburgh Library to digitise their one copy of it so that we can, we can cite Elizabeth Alexander. Nice. Um, oh, she was fabulous. She was a British special agent stationed in New Zealand who, like, did the first radio astronomy incidentally as part of her, like, stellar career in geology with an interruption to be a secret agent. I feel a movie coming on. She's pretty cool. Uh, but but this is a really interesting mode of discourse is re-acknowledging people who have been marginalised from the history of science. Yeah, I think it's very important to do. Yeah. Uh, and to do well as well. As a philosopher of science, what do you think about the interesting position, say, in at Actor Network Theory, of someone who contributes an idea and then is marginalised from discourse, that the fields rest upon this invisible set of actors who exert influence without agency? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in it, but mm. I did write a paper a while ago about the notion of invisible, or in fact, uh, I wrote about the notion of imaginary actors. Mm. And I think this ties in. The idea was basically that when you're doing actor network theory, you look at human and non-human actors. Mm. And the idea is that you're getting away from any sort of technological determinism mm. by crediting everything sort of equally within mm. a network of influence. So famously, uh, Latour's book, Aramis, has a whole chapter where he writes an imaginary conversation between components of an engine, mm. which is a fun read. And could, could make a great movie, mm. children's film. You heard it here first. But <laughs> on the subject of imaginary actants, so my theory was that you have in the, the climate debate, for example, you have this notion of scientists mm. and they're never actually named or mm. cited in the media, mm. but nonetheless they exist in that they exert influence, but mm. they may not actually exist. So they say, oh, well, you know, some scientists say that 
Mm. Climate change is not caused by human factors. It's just a natural process and there's nothing we can do about it. In no sense is is it necessary mm. for scientists who think that to actually exist. Mm. You can just pretend that they exist or say that they exist, invoke an imaginary image of them existing, and that is sufficient to have some sort of influence. So I guess this is the inverse situation is that the people well, do exist. Yeah, but, but they don't have any position. Wiped clean from the discourse. Within the network. Yeah. But at the same time, the people who have the position within the network as being the person who did the first radio astronomy vision of the sun mm. are not, didn't actually do it. Mm. So there's also that factor. In mm. a sense, they are also imaginary in that they are a placeholder for a concept rather than anything particularly tangible. Isn't it interesting how the production of knowledge sure is you know, mediated by people's relationships, which include power relationships, but the actual knowledge itself has some priority over any power relationships. Now, the things that Ruby Payne Scott showed to be true were true independently of her ability to advocate for them within the network. But because they were taken up by other people, because they they had this independent life of their own. Arguably, they were true whether or not she said they were true. Yeah, but the social production of knowing them to be true. Oh, yes. Well, was, yes. Was undertaken in the absence of um, a great degree of respect or power being afforded to the person who showed them to be true. I think that's quite interesting. Well, that's that a particular aspect. You can absolutely aspect. cut across society as this communist person and then you know, this feminist activist who, who gets sacked by the, the government for various reasons that are terrible. But she was still right. But that's the notion of science, isn't it? Yeah. The idea that the knowledge is separated from the person who produces mm. it, which is weird because we actually hold up the individuals who produce mm. particular bits of science as, mm. as heroes often, mm. rarely heroines. And in a way, the only way we can demarginalize the marginalized people is by making them heroes too, or yeah. heroines in this case. Yeah. So that's weird, isn't it? The way that we, we like to think that science works, which is the idea is mm. independent of the person who um, mm. puts it forward, isn't, is actually not at all the way that science works. Another interesting part of Hidden Figures that I really liked was the notion of a human being a technology, so the women being computers. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, and the way that then the technology comes in as yeah. technology technology mm. and computer becomes a noun. Yeah. It, it is now a thing. It loses its animacy. Yeah. It becomes, yeah, and then the person must be the programmer who programs the computer. Yeah. I thought that that was a really interesting thing that the film explored and the way that that shift occurred and the impact it had on the people around it. Do you think that any of the ways in which we perceive computers to have agency or, or autonomy, even though they don't, stems from the ways in which they replaced human beings who had agency and autonomy in particular roles? We don't think of abacuses as taking over the world or something. But computers seem to have some kind of personality or desires or wishes or actions 
the rise think, of the rise of the machine is actually the yeah. rise of um, marginalized women. Well, do you think we're afraid of the machines taking over because the machines are this sublimation of dehumanized people? Well, previously, this is really interesting because if you go further back in history, mm. the computers were people of generally, as I understand it, lower classes. Mm where um, the people in the universities would send out their calculations broken down into steps to sort of poorer people in the countryside to do and send back. Mm. So um, in that sense, there's a class element there mm. as well, isn't there? That's really interesting. I was thinking about this just the other day when my yeah. phone ran out of battery and I said to someone, oh, my phone died. And then I was interrogating that statement and thinking, why is it that that has become the standard way of expressing the fact that a piece of technology mm. has ceased to function because it, it's run out of a power source. It's remarkable that we treat, we, we say it died rather than it went, when it went to sleep, even though going to sleep is a better analogy mm. in terms of the human experience, that we're literally stripping death of its meaning when we think about computers doing this. But also I think that this is leaking into the way in which we see human beings, that death is not of cosmic significance, it's an inconvenience. Have you seen the latest music video by Grimes? No. Oh my God. We must see this and almost reconvene in a minute. But <laughs> do you know Grimes, Elon Musk's girlfriend, the pop star? Okay. Yeah. Let's watch this and oh then my reconvene. God. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. Part two of the discussion, post-Grimes, will be available next week. As you may be aware, this podcast now has its own email address, which I monitor on its behalf. AI isn't quite there yet. So send your questions, comments and complaints through to thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And while you're at it, follow my space research adventures on Instagram as at Annie Hanma. Granted, I'm only just working out how the whole thing works, and I'm still deeply confused by the concept of sharing square-shaped images with the undefined masses. But I'll admit it's a convenient way to keep on top of trends. God forbid I should venture outside the house without knowing whether scrunchies are cool right now or not. You can also find Dr. Benjamin Pope on Twitter and Instagram as at Fringe Tracker.